Welcome to the Sociology Talk podcast. Today we'll be speaking to Dr. Michael Schwalbe, who is Professor of Sociology at North Carolina State University. He is also the author of Rigging the Game, How Inequality is Reproduced in Everyday Life. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome to another episode of Sociology Talk. Here we have Dr. Michael Schwalbe, who's a sociology professor at North uh, Carolina State University. He's the author of the book, Rigging the Game, How Inequality is Reproduced in Everyday Life. And yeah, we're really excited to, we're really excited to have you on. Thank you for coming. Well, I'm, I'm glad you um, found my book of uh, sufficient merit to warrant this conversation. Yeah, of course. And um, I just wanted to say that this book is very uh, helpful in understanding inequality in everyday life. Um, I also enjoy the fact that how can we approach inequality even at a micro level, with even within our conversations. And so I, students that I've, uh, I mean, I signed this book in my senior seminar class and students really enjoy reading it uh, just because it's easy to grasp. You've made it in a way where you always supply so many examples of how it works and how it has uh, created inequality um, years after a certain instance, for instance, redlining. As I had mentioned before this podcast, I've read this uh, several <laughs> times uh, because I love it and I'm also required <laughs> because I sign it in class. And so I, my question uh, for you is, what, what motivated you to write the book, Rigging the Game? Well, it, it really did grow out of my teaching about inequality over the years. Going back to the early 80s, even graduate school days when I first started teaching, I taught social problems. And a lot of my courses over the years focused on inequality more or less directly. Uh, I taught social class, social inequality, uh, race, class, gender, sociology of gender. At the graduate level, I taught social psychology of inequality. And going back to the, I'd say about the mid 90s here at NC State, I was teaching a race, class, gender course that then kind of evolved into um, a broader social inequality course. And I had been teaching this graduate course on social psychology of inequality. And what I found was that I would spend a certain amount of time in each course talking about how much inequality there is of various kinds, focusing to a large extent on economic inequalities, but sometimes other kinds as well, and uh, things like healthcare and education, safety, different ways of looking at how uh, social goods are unequally distributed in our society. And I found that um, that was easy enough to teach about. It's easy enough to look at the data. You know, if you can read a graph, a chart, a diagram, you can pretty quickly grasp how much inequality of these various kinds uh, there are. How many? How, you can you can get an, a clear sense of the extent of inequality in our society. But what's trickier is to understand how that inequality is created and perpetuated. And so what I found in these courses in, in my teaching was that that was, that was a greater intellectual challenge. I, in my own scholarly work, that's where I found myself drifting, was thinking mm -hmm. about how inequalities are created from the start, how they're perpetuated, how they're reproduced. And so my teaching and my scholarly writing uh, were converging. And in my classes, what I found was helpful uh, for students was spending more time talking about how inequalities are created and perpetuated, looking at those processes, uh, processes at the institutional and organizational levels, processes at the micro level, what goes on in everyday life as rigging the game is subtitled, um, that in 
some way or through a variety of processes has the consequence of reproducing inequality. So, so as I say, the book grew out of, out of that teaching experience and what I was finding most uh, challenging and rewarding in teaching about inequality. And I think the first draft of the book or the first edition I finished uh, in the summer of 2006. So I had already at that point been teaching about inequality for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had a pretty good sense for how students um, could understand what's going on. In other words, I had a good sense, I think I did, for what worked <laughs> as far as explaining how inequality is created and reproduced. And so that book was my attempt to take what I had learned over the years in thinking and writing and teaching about inequality and try to bring it together into uh, one coherent account that would allow students from the beginning to the end of the book to come away with an understanding of, oh, this is how it works. These are, these are the kinds of processes through which inequalities are created. And I think that leads to a richer understanding um, at the end of the book than just knowing about how much inequality there is in our society. Because mm -hmm. as I say, that you can get across pretty quickly. It's tougher to uh, help students understand how those inequalities are created and maintained. Right, yeah. And I love the fact that uh, the book is just, hits it right on the nose, right? It's rigging the game, right? And you mentioned uh, the very beginning of the book, uh, there's a certain game that you played with plates, you cut them up and you divide them along stu with among students. And uh, I really thought that that was a really interesting way to teach inequality. And so I think that um, uh, I, I would have loved to take one of your classes because it just seemed like it would have been really fun. Um, yeah, and in that whole concept of the game, um, where did where did that come from? Do you know, or do you, can you remember? Uh, well, it's a, it's a way to, um communicate what's going on. It's a metaphor, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's part of what helps students grasp how these things work. So if you, if it's, it's taking something that's less familiar, in other words, all these economic and political processes through which inequalities are created and maintained, and using something much more familiar, a game, mm -hmm. um, to explain it. So we can talk about how games have rules and somebody creates those rules, somebody enforces those rules, someone interprets those rules. And uh, depending on, on the rules, you know, you can see how certain kinds of outcomes uh, can be produced. And of course, if the game is tilted or rigged in some way, you can see how that can systematically advantage one side versus another side. So all that's pretty familiar to people in our culture, the idea of a game, rules that govern a game, rules that people draw upon to play a game, to organize some kind of activity together. And they have a sense for what a fair game is and also what a rigged game is, where one side, as I say, can somehow engineer things to its advantage. So that metaphor is very helpful and I found it helpful in teaching for talking about how our political and economic systems work such that, I mean, there are rules and if you are um, a powerful actor when it comes to creating those rules or interpreting them or enforcing them, then you can, again, kind of tilt the game or rig the game to some extent to your advantage, more or less uh, to your advantage, in some cases, quite a bit to your advantage. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the metaphor is, is just a helpful one. And I, um, of course, sociology has a lot of metaphors in it. You know, dramaturgy uses the metaphor of um, uh, the theater. Um, exchange theory uses a metaphor of the market. Um, and if you went through uh, other sociological theories, you might find other kind of underlying metaphors 
that sort of organize those those ways of thinking. And so there actually is an area in social psychology and psychology and um, behavioral economics called game theory. That's strictly speaking, not how uh, rigging the game works. Uh, but it's it's a way of thinking about social life in terms of how uh, games work and how people make calculations um, about how they're going to behave. That's not, as I say, precisely how I use the metaphor in rigging the game. But um, I guess I'm just making the point that social science more generally often draws on these kinds of metaphors to uh, give coherence to its way of, of in, or a particular way of interpreting the world. So this is, this is a metaphor I found very helpful for explaining these things and for, uh, for, for helping students grasp what's going on. Right, yeah. It's a great way to explain how inequality works. You know, like, like Goffman and you said exchange theory. Um, I really, I really love Goffman because it's just so, by using that metaphor, it makes it so easy to understand that idea, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, I really think it was a neat way to, you know, structure the book. And then, you know, of course, you think you're playing in a fair game, right. uh, but it's not so fair when you figure out it's, um, you know, the like the likelihood of winning <laughs> or, mm -hmm. or going going to the top of the game is uh, you're very limited. So yeah, it's a very interesting way to understand that. And so um, by using the metaphor, um, does that help you to discuss the concept of inequality or the discussion of your book to politically divided audiences? I mean, maybe I'm, I mean, for me, at least I've had uh, students that often on different ends of the spectrum when it comes to how they understand inequality, um, mm -hmm. how it works, um, or if even some types of inequality even exist. Um, I've, had, I've had to have conversations with students like that. And so how do you approach students that's in your classroom that are uh, politically divided? <laughs> well, um, I, I, the students at NC State are, um, uh, probably in some ways not all that different from uh, Cal State Bakersfield, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they come from all over the political spectrum. There are some who you, know, you might think of as kind of conventionally liberal, even some that are conventionally radical, although that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but let's just let it go for the moment. Uh, and some who are quite conservative. But um, when I teach the course, my approach is to uh, start with data, and again, say when I, when I say the course, I mean my social inequality course at the undergraduate level. So we start with data and say, let's just look at some, some facts and figures, some statistics about how unequal our society is in various ways. And that's pretty uncontroversial. I mean, I explain where the data come from, how they're collected, and we look at that. And that doesn't cause uh, too much uh, trouble. Where trouble might arise is in understanding how those inequalities come about. Because if you think those inequalities come about in some fair way, you know, it's just a reflection of natural differences in talent or ambition or willingness to work hard or something like that, then you might think, well, okay, so what? There's, there's inequality in our society and yeah, it's pretty extreme in some ways, but well, what are you gonna do? Because if it just is a result of, of a fair process or some kind of natural process, um, what do you, you, know, you, you kind of shrug and say, well, it might not be ideal, but that's how it is. Whereas if you understand that there are processes that are not <laughs> fair by anyone's definition that create and reproduce those uh, outcomes, then you, you may come to have a, a different take on things. So, so 
my, my classes are always divided in terms of where they start uh, and looking at these things. But I, I kind of approach it as um, an analysis that you develop over the course of the semester. So you can start with how much inequality there is or different kinds of inequalities. And then you start uh, opening up that analysis to think about, well, what produces this? And so when I, when I wrote Rigging the Game, I was trying to develop that argument kind of step-by-step -step fashion so that regardless of where someone might be on a political spectrum, they can take up this argument, consider it, and start to see how um, aspects of the social world that they might have previously thought were unproblematic from, a, from the standpoint, say, of fairness uh, uh, or justice, um, maybe are in some ways problematic if they understand how those processes really work to systematically advantage some people and systematically disadvantage others um, as a result of you know, the rules of the game, uh, so to speak, to go back to my metaphor, a result of how the system works and the rules that we rely on to organize social life, to organize uh, our institutions in this society. And if you see that it's possible for some groups of people to uh, create rules that advantage them, uh, to interpret the rules in ways that advantage them, to enforce the rules in ways that advantage them, mm -hmm. then you're starting to, you know, regard again, regardless of where you start on the political spectrum at the beginning of that analysis, if you're starting to see how things work, then you can decide, hmm, maybe, maybe I was mistaken in thinking that this was all coming about through some kind of natural process or fair process. And now I'm seeing more deeply into how things work and maybe rethinking that. And, you know, it doesn't mean that everybody goes through some uh, marvelous transformation over the course of the semester. Mm -hmm. um, people can be really, student people uh, can be really ensconced in their, in their way of seeing things. Uh, but in my experience, um, I don't approach things from the standpoint of this is a liberal view, this is a uh, conservative view, this is a radical view. I say this is a sociological view. We're going to look at how the system works. We're going to try to understand how... Um, our society works such that these outcomes or these inequalities are the outcomes. And, and I think that helps get people on board. Um, and, you know, where people come down morally on it is something they're going to have to figure out for themselves. But if they never have a chance to develop a critical analysis, they might never see what is potentially morally problematic about certain inequalities in our society. So, so that's how I approach it. Um, I don't, you know, and say, well, okay, this is a like a liberal view or a radical view. I say, this is a, a sociological view, or maybe I'll say it's a critical sociological view because we're going to bring into question some things that we ordinarily don't question in our society. Um, and I hope at the, at the end of the day or the end of the semester, um, you've got a different way of analyzing what's going on and um, a different way of understanding it. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my students uh, come in and they have, they have, uh, they struggle with Tina, right? But as you mentioned the mm. book concept, there is no other alternative. Mm. Whereas, as you mentioned, it's like, well, there's inequality, but this is kind of how it is. What are we going to do about it? You know? And uh, I also love in the very beginning of the book, how you mentioned like, you know, I'm going to say some things <laughs> that you might not agree with or maybe consider very radical, uh, but just, just hear me out, you know? And I really love that section. Um, because it just keep an open, it just allows students, you know, just even if you disagree with this, just keep an open mind, right? Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of students, they struggle with Tina. And then when they read about actually how other nations do it differently, they're like, whoa, I didn't even know there was actually an alternative. And that that alternative is actually working for somebody else, right? Or 
a group of people right now. So for instance, proportional representation. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's very interesting. And I wonder if, um, if the narratives or the stories that you include in these books, they're fictional um, stories, but they resemble some type of um, underlying meaning in, in society that's going on, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, I really enjoy them. And so I wonder, was that is that also part of the reason you include these stories is just to kind of allow students to think about it a little bit more or? Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> stories probably, um, long time ago, I would never have thought to do that. Um, But what I did in an earlier book, uh, The Sociologically Examined Life, was to include some short illustrative stories. And I think where that originated was, again, in my teaching practice, where I would um, sometimes create vignettes for Mm. discussion purposes in class, a little story, uh, maybe a paragraph length story. And project it on the screen and treat it as a scene or almost a piece of data and have the students analyze what's going on in this little story in this little scene. And so that got woven into the sociologically examined life, some of those short stories uh, as a way to illustrate different um, sociological concepts or ways of looking at things sociologically. So when I came to write Rigging the Game, I thought, well, that seems to have worked well as a technique in my previous book. And I thought, well, I'm going to try this again, maybe on a little bit larger scale, maybe some short chapters where I will um, create stories that are allegories for these processes or stories that, you know, allegorically illustrate the processes that are treated more analytically in the straight sort of analysis chapters. And the response has been pretty good. I mean, I, I, I also thought of it as a way to make the book more interesting, as a way to make it more engaging for students maybe to generate discussion like mm-hmm. you know what's going on in this story how does this story illustrate you know what we just read about in this analytic chapter so um i think that was you know kind of the, the strategy i had in mind when i wrote those stories was that it would make the book more useful more engaging and you know as i say i call them allegories you know advisedly because they they are intended to uh, correspond to real processes in the world not necessarily real people but real processes so mm-hmm. uh, you can read um uh, the valley of the nine families that's one of the stories and you can see how um you can see how events take shape in ways that can create inequalities at one time in history and produce a cascade of effects over time in later generations. So this is clearly uh, an allegory for um, how these kinds of inequalities have been created in our society over generations, you know, and how advantage at one time can accumulate and turn into an even greater advantage at another time. So that's one kind of allegory. And the the, the smokescreen story, um, you know, there again, you see how some different kinds of rules of the game having to do with um, how... Um, actually it's going to sound totally boring to say taxation but you know how how rules of a tax code can create opportunities for criminal enterprises in ways that actually parallel what we see going on in so-called legitimate governments um so you can see some parallels there between uh this kind of organized criminal enterprise that's a you know part of the story in that case, and how uh, other legitimate organizations, we, or organizations that we think of as legitimate, operate in our society. So um, 
so I guess I, I'd hoped with those stories that it, people would say, oh, look, look, this is this um, what's going on in this story isn't all that different from what goes on uh, all around us every day when we see powerful actors um, controlling organizations and using their control over resources to um, find ever more creative ways to enrich themselves. So, um, so anyway, I, I hope that the stories would, would have that, uh, that effect, you know, to make people more interested in, in, in thinking about um, the processes in the real world. Right. Yeah. And at least for uh, my class, my experience, it really is helpful. Um, it also draws out a lot of discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some students think, well, maybe that that could work. But what about this idea? You know, they start to start they start to think about it and then move away from the Tina. You know, there's no mm-hmm. other alternative. Uh, my, my favorite story is the, the last one you include, the Renaya, mm-hmm. uh, where what could potentially happen that could create a right. equal society. Right. We're we're. Um, you know, what was done, um, so you, there's a lot of themes of Ac- Occupy Wall Street included there, mm-hmm. the, um, macro level. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I really enjoyed the, the stories. And I know the students really enjoy uh, interpreting them. And, and then um, how, how, I guess, together, we help each other to come up with, you know, uh, what is, what is this story telling us? And how can we interpret it in and reality and mm-hmm. and what it looks like and so yeah they're really fun and i really enjoy them so uh, i'm glad to, i'm glad to hear that <laughs> <laughs> we do we really have a good time with them and so i guess the book is um um is it published i think a few years ago or second edition um what's the copyright on the second edition if you got it in your hands there yeah let me check it out um so let's see i have 2015 yeah, that sounds right. That's the second edition. Yeah. And so have you, um, I guess, noticed things, um, I guess, after publication of this book that you're like, man, that's, I would really like to include that. And maybe a newer edition or, or something like that. Um, I have, I have a question related to the era of Trump, but I'll mm-hmm. just let you kind of go ahead for, have you, have you thought about like um, certain things that you'd like to include and maybe later um, editions or? Well, I, I keep a kind of, I, it's more than a file, um, but it, it is, a, I'll just call it a file. So I keep a, a, a new edition file for all of my books. So with Rigging the Game, I have a file folder here somewhere in my study in which I drop notes and articles you know, that um, I think would be relevant, potentially relevant to something I might want to add in a new edition. I also, when I see a book that looks like it could be related uh, in some way, I will grab that and uh, get a copy and um, set it aside in an area on my bookshelf. And so if the opportunity arises, then I would go back to those materials and say, okay, I've got more I could say, for instance, about uh, how the government uh, was involved in the creation of residential segregation in the U.S. There's the there is the bit in the book about um, uh, redlining and the um, FHA and loan rules um, in the post World War II period. Mm-hmm. I could certainly say more about that. There have been some really good pieces of work done uh, in recent years about that topic. Um, there's been more stuff on taxation, although I'm <laughs> I'm always a little 
leery to go too far about wary of going too far into the taxation stuff with an undergraduate audience it might not necessarily be the most appealing thing for them but that's crucial um so whenever i see some whenever i read something and i think okay you know this could be uh, either something that would round out part of the argument or another illustration um i i grab it put it in the file and then as I say, if the if it turns out that the market warrants it, you know, if um, Oxford comes back to me and says, "Oh, we'd like you to do a new edition," I'm kind of ready to go. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, but I think the logic of the argument is one that would allow a person, a student, to say, "Okay, well, now I'm going to be more attuned to things like laws, policies, procedures, and how these." routine ways and the rules uh, by which uh, institutions operate um, can create inequalities, mm -hmm. systematic advantages for some and systematic disadvantages for others. So the logic of the argument is I, is I think what's important for readers to get in their minds, because once you've got that, then your awareness is heightened and you can start paying closer attention to how rules are created, how uh, they're interpreted and how they're enforced, again, in ways that produce unequal outcomes for different groups of people. Mm -hmm. um, so you can multiply the examples. There's no, there's no limit to the examples. You could, every institution in our society, you could look at and apply this analysis. Um, it's just a question of, um, you know, What's, what's most effective for, for the intended audience? So mm -hmm. yes, if I were to do the book today or redo the book or do a new edition, um, I would probably look for some ways to freshen up those examples, um, maybe try to think of something that could be resonant with uh, an undergraduate audience. Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe, maybe something having to do with social media and the rules by which mm -hmm. social media operate. That, would probably be uh, something that an undergraduate audience would be very attuned to or interested in. So, um, yeah, that, I mean, so I, so that's kind of my general approach to it is is to keep building those files and and then um, if if it comes to uh, producing a new edition, think about all right, what what would make the most sense here to to make this come alive or illustrated even more vividly with uh, with an audience today. So. Mm -hmm. If you have ideas, that's that's in fact that's one reason I like these kinds of interactions is that yeah. people who who use the book regularly often are in a better position to know what would what would work um, by way of new examples than um, than I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, the the book does have a ton of information, so I understand that. Um, it's hard; it's difficult to talk about everything, right? <laughs> so you know. Um, and then you're also targeting an undergraduate audience and you're trying to make it so that they can grasp it. You're not trying to feed them too much. And so, yeah, that's really, I understand that. Um, but you do include a ton of information that I think is valuable and helpful for students. So for instance, you talk about some elements of Annette LaRose uh, book, Unequal Childhoods. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's the second book we go into when we talk about class and how um, even being born into um, a certain family in a certain class already, you know, you're, you're behind um, versus somebody that maybe is born in uh, Beverly Hills, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they, they have the resources, they have the social capital, they have uh, the stuff that will give them the advantages to uh, get ahead. Mm -hmm. um, not saying that they don't work hard, but, you know, somebody that maybe was born in East Side LA or something like that, 
in a working class or poor class family, um, they're not, they don't have those resources or tools readily available to them. Um, they're going to have to work to get those in order to compete. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a very interesting, I like how you include that in the book. We also, uh, I also signed that as a second book, but the third book I also include, um, you know, cause you had asked, asked about, you know, um, certain things that maybe could be included or uh, discussed a little bit more is the, you have it, the redlining and that's, mm -hmm. uh, but we talk about uh, mass incarceration. So I'm not sure mm -hmm. if you actually had a copy of uh, the new Jim Crow, Michelle mm -hmm. Alexander mm -hmm. and students really, um, they learn a lot from that. And when I first read it, I was just taken back like, wow. Uh, some of the things I just, I didn't really even know, you know? And so it's a very interesting idea um, so even the, the idea of mass incarceration, I think is a valuable um, idea. Um, but again, you know, you do have tons of information and it'd be very difficult to talk about everything. So yeah, but that's, that's the third book we, we come in with uh, just to kind of fill in um, that idea about race and racial inequality. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about many more topics, but you know, within the semesters, there's just only so much you can mm -hmm. do. And so their final project is where they bring in some uh, type of inequality that they're passionate about. And they go out and they do research, they gather articles, scholarly, scholarly articles from the databases and they bring it and share it. And that's kind of my way to fill in any other types of inequality that we haven't discussed. Um, and so a lot of it has to be, has to do with the, LGBTQ plus community. Um, and so things like that, more, more things directed toward racial inequality uh, in school because they meant, they tend to think that Annette Leroux didn't really, she, I mean, it's an, it's an excellent book, but there's some, even some ideas that maybe she could have included um, such as the idea of language barriers. Mm -hmm. So for um, the Latinx community, there's uh these idea that they come in as uh, um, first generation college students, and a lot of them, you know, grew up just learning Spanish, and so what you know, she doesn't really bring in the concept of language and what that does for an individual when they're interacting with an inst institution of education. So, of course, there's many things that you include, but you know, there's a there's a reason that we keep it <laughs> limited because you can write. I don't know, pages and pages of a book, right? So, yeah, and, and I think what, what a student might do, and I think that's a great suggestion to think about, um, you know, if I were to do a new edition, to think about um, maybe uh, bringing in something about the rules of the game in the criminal justice arena. Mm -hmm. um, but there's an example of, of uh, where I think an example of the possibility of extending the analysis. So uh, someone who gets the analysis in the book might think, okay, let's look at the rules of the game that apply in the sphere of so-called criminal justice in our society mm -hmm. and think about how those rules work. You know, who makes them, who interprets them, who enforces them um, with what kinds of um, resulting advantages and disadvantages for different groups of people, depending on the resources they start life with. So, so in other words, you could, you could take the analysis uh, in one institutional domain and apply it there. And I think, you know, to great, uh, to great benefit, uh, sociological benefit to see, oh yeah, you know, we see how the, this game too is rigged in this area, whether mm -hmm. it's criminal justice, uh, incarceration, 
you know, how the court system works, um, differential enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. You, you, can, you can see the same kinds of processes going on in that institutional realm as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, uh, I often recommend a documentary called 13 to my students. Sometimes I give them a little extra credit if they'll, do, if they'll watch it. <laughs> I just kind of motivate them. And yeah, it, it kind of it covers like the same idea that there's um, that same theme, you know, as the game that there's there's certain game that exists and um, there's a group of people that are disadvantaged. And so the question I wanted to follow up with um, with you know new information that I guess um, could be added to the book in possible later edition is the era of Trump. And so did you ever find, do you find anything relevant, relevant in your book in the era of Trump? Ah, well, it's a, yeah, it's kind of an interesting question. I, I saw that um, on the list you sent me. Um, although the question on your list is how relevant is your book in the era oh, of yes. Trump? And I, I, my, my simple answer was going to be more relevant than ever, but um, <laughs> you know, nothing has fundamentally changed about how our society works in terms of, again, the rules of the game that underlie um, different institutional realms. Um, so, you know, Trump is kind of a, you know, it's like turning the dial up to 11 on, um, if you if you know the Spinal Tap film, although I'm probably dating myself with that one. It's a, one of those <laughs> pop culture references that, you know, only a few of us will get anymore. But, um, um, you know, so there's nothing about Trump per se uh, in the so-called Trump era that I think, you know, um, weakens any part of the analysis of anything. It, it, it only strengthens it. So, um, you know, we, I guess we wanted to, okay, let me, I teach a course called corporate power in America. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we, we look at the, um, uh, the institutional arrangements whereby the, um, the largest corporations in U S society uh, can effectively influence government, well, not just influence it, but exercise dominant control over government. And we, we take that process apart in detail. We look at the different ways that the corporate community organizes itself to be able to exercise dominant influence over government. At the end of that course, I, I have incorporated uh, the last couple of times I've taught it, uh, a book called American Discontent by a sociologist named, uh, I think it's John Campbell. And he makes a really important argument, which is that the forces in our society that produced Donald Trump pre-existed him, of course, by decades. And those same forces are operating now in what we might hope is the post-Trump era. Um, and so, you know, once you kind of get beneath the, you know, the, the surface antics, the, you know, the bizarro political antics, you see that the same kinds of institutional forces are operating. That isn't to say that everything's the same and that, you know, there were, was nothing, you know, of sociological interest that uh, characterized their most recent, uh, you know, period of uh, presidential regime. But it's to say that if you look at how the institutions operate and kind of are, you step back and you see how our economy works, you see things really are, are more uh, constant than they are, are different. So, um, so yeah, on the surface, it, it looks looks different, um, but underneath, we we still want the analysis that helps us see what kinds of 
uh, rulemaking is going on and rule interpreting and rule enforcing such that um, already powerful political and economic actors in our society are, are still able to uh, play the system to their advantage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, um, there's also this whole idea of, um, of QAnon that's associated, I guess, <laughs> somewhat associated with Trump, right? Um, and so, I don't know, have you thought about the role of, of that in the rigged game? Um, not explicitly, but I mean, my thought when I saw that question was, well, it's kind of distraction on the one mm -hmm. hand. There is a little part of rigging the game where I talk about bread and circuses and how, um, you know, um, most people in our society are kind of occupied for the, for the most part in their everyday lives with things like work, family, leisure, and don't spend anywhere near the amount of time that sociologists do analyzing how all these things work. I mean, if you're, if you're a social scientist uh, in a university, a professor, this is what you think about all the time. You, you think about uh, how society works and how and why people behave as they do. You might be thinking about history and um, different ways uh, society and institutions have operated over time. This is, this is what occupies our minds. Mm -hmm. Most people, and it's not to say that academics don't have these you know, same concerns with work, family, and leisure, but most people, um, you know, to a large extent, that's what their lives are taken up with. And um, it's very easy under these conditions to distract people from doing the kind of in-depth critical analysis that uh, we try to communicate in our classes and we try to communicate through the books, the readings we give students. So something like QAnon um, and I have read, I have read about it. In fact, this last year, I even used um, a couple books on conspiracy theories in, in two of my classes. So um, I have given some thought to it, but I think it's, it's on the one hand, largely a distraction, but on the other hand, um, it, it appeals to people because it, it offers them a kind of story about how our society works and why things happen as, as they do. This is part of the appeal of conspiracy theories especially to people who are kind of marginalized politically and economically, um, who, who know that the system doesn't work to their advantage, but they don't have um, an elaborate analysis of why. So a conspiracy theory that tells a kind of compelling, appealing story about the machinations of, you know, powerful behind the scenes actors um, can be very appealing. It, it's, it's, it's a kind of analysis. It's not an analysis that holds up when you, you know, subject it to a rigorous uh, logical examination or you look for evidence, but it's a story, you know. So conspiracy theories are, are stories that uh, transmit political ideologies. They distract people from uh, developing more um, uh, evidence-based analyses of how society works. Um, so that's how I would see it fitting in. Um, it's, you know, as a sociologist, did you know, someone who's spent a lot of time um, dedicated my career really to, you know, trying to um, establish that we can understand how our society works by studying it carefully, using good research methods, mm -hmm. paying uh, close attention to, to, to data, um, making tightly reasoned logical arguments challenging our own arguments to see how well they stand up against uh, criticism. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. If that's been your approach, and it's been my approach to trying to understand society, it can be really uh, frustrating at times to run into these conspiracy theories that are so resistant to yes. um, logical refutation, so resistant to evidence-based refutation. Um, so they are a problem. I wouldn't deny that they're a problem. Um, but as I say, I think mainly because they're distracting and they keep people from doing uh, a harder kind of work. Uh, and it, and it, truthfully, a lot of people aren't very well positioned to be able to do that kind of work. I mean, if you're an ordinary working person, it's, you know, where are you going to go? Can, you know, you, you know, people who take sociology classes uh, by definition are in a kind of privileged position when it comes to uh, acquiring this sort of analysis. Um, and if you don't have that opportunity, um, maybe you turn to YouTube or um, social media and somebody's offering you a really entertaining uh, story about um, how the world works and you know who, who are these you know behind the scenes uh, powerful actors pulling strings and whatnot. Maybe that's maybe that's appealing and maybe even more appealing if it's appealing to some kinds of uh, deep running prejudices that uh, people harbor. So there's a lot of scapegoating that's part of those kinds of, of conspiracy theories, can, uh, scapegoating uh, marginalized groups in our society. So um, there's all kinds of ways. I think those conspiracy theories are a problem and, and they are uh, dangerous. Um, and we just have to, I think, as, as uh, social scientists who care about um, logic and evidence and good analysis, keep kind of coming back to those those things that are our strong suit you know try to help students learn to see through the um see through conspiracy theories that are, are well i'll just say flaky <laughs> um and to actually uh, be able to distinguish a good uh evidence-based analysis from one that's might be an entertaining story but is is you know almost entirely fictional yeah, I totally agree. I think that it, it is a distraction. You mentioned the, the bread and circuses. And I think that has a lot to do with, it seems like it's more of like a critical theory based concept where, uh, you know, the culture industry, we often get distracted from media. And, you know, there seems like to be some kind of simulation simulacra concept <laughs> to it. Like, you know, these stories, these things that are produced from different various media outlets become real to some people. And so to a point where they're marching the Capitol <laughs> and, and, in, uh, and so it's, it's really, I agree. I think it is really dangerous. Um, if we, especially if somebody doesn't really um, take the time to explore, is this real? Is this really happening? What are other, what is other information out there? If you're just sitting home and watching a Netflix documentary on <laughs> QAnon, then it's, it's difficult um, and it's also dangerous. So yeah, I really agree. Um, at least for me, in my experience in the Trump era, um, I agree. I think it was it was very difficult to um, explain, especially with different types of inequality, that um, how it works and how it exists. Um, I've had students get up and walk out of the classroom when I bring up some form of racial inequality, and it's not even like a very controversial conversation it's about like manifest destiny and i'm like okay y'all know that was messed up right uh so yeah at least for me in my experience as a latino um it was very difficult to talk about that in the era of trump and um there was a lot of i felt a lot of resistance um at least with some of my students 
And I think that's the, the, that era um, gave them and the out, they gave them, they gave them the okay to do that, you know, that, mm-hmm. um, and so, I mean, cause if you, if I'm sitting there in the, in the classroom, you see a Latino talking about racial inequality, students can be like, we're biased. Like, of course you'd say that, you know? <laughs> and so it's, uh, yeah, for me, it was very difficult to talk about that stuff. It made my job a little bit more, uh, difficult, um, uh, because now I have to, not only talk about something that students weren't really used to listening uh, to, but it, they now have uh, somebody of authority, right? So President Trump at that time uh, gave them a reason to get up and walk out of my class, you know? And so that's kind of how my experience uh, felt. And um, yeah, it, it made it very difficult. Yeah. For me. Yeah. And, and, I can appreciate that. I, you know, I, I'm well aware that as a, an older white male, um, looks pretty conventional. Um, I have a lot of privilege in the classroom, and um, students, you know, can look at me and kind of be puzzled, like, "Wait a second, he looks like an old white guy." Uh, so I don't get, you know, they can't figure out what axe I'm grinding because, you know, they don't have the usual categories to use to discount what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So I have tried to use that to my advantage over the years. Um, one thought I have, um, and of course, everyone's experience in the classroom is going to be different depending on who they are and you know who the students are. But um, it sort of happened these last couple of years that I've ended up teaching a course. I did. It's not a course I created. It's one I, I sort of inherited uh, somewhat, um, you know, fortuitously, I guess since things have turned out okay, I can say fortuitously. Uh, it's, the course is titled Inequality, Ideology, and Social Justice. And so one of the books I've used in this course to great benefit uh, at least twice now is, uh, it's called Dog Whistle Politics by Ian Haney Lopez. I don't know if you know this book, but what I think has made this book work so well is that he helps students understand how they may very well have been played by some of this kind of scapegoating that you're alluding to that probably is underlying those students' willingness to reject your, you know, your teaching and to, you know, get up and leave. Mm -hmm. And I think with young people, if you can help them understand how in some ways they've been played by more powerful actors, that gives them something to, um, to -hmm. react against. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's sort of like, uh, the old TV ads that uh, the anti-smoking ads that showed young people how the tobacco industry uh, was actually, you know, quite calculating in its attempts to mislead and um, uh, manipulate uh, teenagers to get them to see smoking as this attractive uh, practice. And when students or young people saw that, when that was revealed, you know, they were outraged. They realized they were they were being tricked. And I think. Um, this book I mentioned, Dog Whistle Politics, helps students see how, uh, to some extent, they too have been tricked by these political uh, schemes that um, are subtle ways of scapegoating immigrants, Mm -hmm. people of color, and other marginalized groups, trying to get them to see those people as the problem, when in fact, um, it's actually political and economic uh, elites who are, um, who are, the, the real source of, of the problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've all, yeah, I haven't actually read that book or, or seen it, but I wrote it down, so I'll, I'll plan on getting that. Um, 
Another tactic or strategy I like to use when talking about inequality, especially racial inequality, I teach uh, sociological theory, classical sociological theory, and I really love to include W.E.B. Du Bois mm -hmm. uh, just because he wasn't really recognized among the top uh, intellectual scholars at that time because of who he was, an African-American. And so, um, yeah, it was, for me, I like to approach it before, you know, before I get into this conversation, I want to talk about how each one of us could be privileged in some way. You know, for me, being a man, that makes me privileged and other areas they may not be. It's this whole idea of, uh, you know, intersectionality, that there's different various types of inequality that are occurring at one point, at one time. Mm -hmm. And so um, I like to just have students think about that, you know, and that, you know, to help them understand that just because you're white doesn't mean you're, you're privileged in all areas, right? There's a poor working class white that uh, is not going to have same advantages and resources as somebody that's from a middle-class white family. And likewise, um, you know, if you identify as uh, heterosexual, that gives you an advantage because of this heteronormative society that we live in. And so um, even living in the US can give, grant you certain privileges than you know, other nation, uh, nations, you know, we, in classical theory, we talk about, or I get, I'm sorry, in contemporary theory, we talk about Manuel Wallerstein and his idea of core semi-periphery and periphery uh, states, you know, uh, nations. And so even being within a core United States, you know, uh, region, we have advantages and we exploit other nations. Um, and so there's, you are, everyone is privileged in some way. And so then when they understand that, um, it makes it easier to kind of jump into those conversations. At least that's kind of been my way of doing it, but I'll definitely check out this, uh, this book. Maybe that'll help me, <laughs> help me a little bit more in the classroom. So, yeah. Yeah. I'll put in a plug for another book I used for many years. Um, Alan Johnson's privilege, power and difference. Okay. Um, and an additional point, basically, he's, uh, you would find him, I think, very much compatible with the position you just articulated. Mm. Um, but he also does a really good job of um, helping students understand how they might be privileged without uh, inducing guilt about it. And I think that's a really um, crucial piece because, you know, sometimes, you know, as soon as, especially in this particular political era, sometimes as soon as people hear the term privileged, if they don't feel they're privileged, um, they, they deny that they are. And what's more, it may come with um, some uh, you know, sort of pinch about, you know, they should feel guilty that they have privilege. Whereas what Alan Johnson argues in Privilege, Power, and Difference is that we've inherited these systems. None of us um, alive today created these systems, but we can continue to benefit from them. And once we understand that we're benefiting from them in some unjust way, we then incur an obligation to work to uh, change them. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I noted that book. I'll have to take, definitely grab that one. And so, yeah, I, I just wanted to thank you again for coming and joining us. Really enjoyed our conversation. And um, yeah, I hope to... Um, you know, if you have a different or a third edition, <laughs> we're one of the first ones to grab it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I hope that turns out to be the case. And um, feel free at any point if you want to compile some of the feedback you've gotten on the book to send it to me. And that, that too will go into the hopper. <laughs> All right. Again, yeah, I appreciate your time here. Thanks. You're welcome.
Thank you for listening to the Sociology Talk podcast. Make sure to check out other episodes for more stories about the lives of sociologists.